0: may or may not be a sports fan. I love playing sports. I'm not a diehard uh, sports fanatic in watching, but uh, I assume whether you're a sports fan, you've played sports, or you uh, know nothing or appreciate nothing about sports, I am confident that you all have an idea of the difference between uh, offense and defense, that it's important to be uh, on the offense at times, but you can't just only be an offensively strong team. You also need to have a strong defense and as we look at uh, the, really the rest of the book of Acts moving forward, we see the Apostle Paul switch to defense mode. He's been on the offense. I mean, there's been defensive moments, certainly. But for the most part, he's been on the offense. He's planting churches. He's sharing the gospel. He's going from place to place. So he's meeting resistance, but he's pushing forward. Right? And so maybe football is the best uh, analogy for this. Right, You're gaining yard by yard, yard. You're pressing forward. You're, you're getting tackles, so there's, there's a defending element involved, but you're really uh, trying to gain field position. You're trying to move forward. But in the same way in football that you may be moving forward, all of a sudden things might flip, and now you're on defense. Now you're trying to defend what's happening. and You're, not, you're trying to make sure not only are you uh, not going to lose field position, but, but even in your defense you want to consider gaining field position. And so there's this flip that happens in offense versus defense. And we see this is what's happening here with the Apostle Paul. He knows that by going to Jerusalem, as we've looked at the last few weeks, he knows that things are going to go south. He knows that things are going to at least get tough. And he's going to have to switch to this defensive mode. All of a sudden, it's not that there's resistance, but it's like everything's coming at him, and he's going into defensive mode. And so he demonstrates that there's a need for us to, to consider and to understand what it means to go on the defense, what it feels like to be assaulted on all sides. So Paul's three big missionary journeys are over. That's the offense. Now he's in defense mode. But I would consider this through the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's journey, well, he's, he's making it to Jerusalem here, and then his journey eventually to Rome. I would consider that his fourth missionary journey. Because we see uh, out of these defenses that he makes, he presses on in faithful discipleship. He isn't simply on a, a track to just say, let me see how long I can stay alive. He's on a track to say, let me see how I can proclaim the gospel, how I can move it forward. Sure, it looks like I'm on defense, but I am trying to gain field position here. And so Luke, the author of Acts, spends a lot of time on these defense speeches. And so we... Can look at that and say there must be something important here for us he spends a lot of time looking at this so over the next five chapters of the book of acts we will see five defense speeches from paul we see that there's going to be similarities but there's also going to be differences in how he approaches it depending on who his audience is and the situation but again what i want to emphasize is this isn't a survival panicked mode for paul He's trying to gain field position. He is relentlessly using these defenses to proclaim the gospel. And that continues this theme that we've seen through the whole book of Acts. That the gospel moves forward. The gospel continues to advance even through apparent setbacks. Our setbacks uh, of the news from the government this week may feel like a very real thing. I mean, it's nothing compared to what Paul is going through. But we can think of it through that lens. Say, oh, just another gut punch. Oh, the wind's out of our sails again. But the gospel will move forward. We can gain confidence as we consider Paul's defenses. And so the next number of weeks may feel like a multi-part series inside of a multi-part series. Uh, but we'll see the culmination of so many of the big ideas we've had in our sermons so far as we've gone through the book of Acts. And and they really culminate in these big ideas of the the end of the book of acts an often neglected portion of the book of acts and so our big idea this morning our big idea this morning all right kids let's focus here our big idea adults let's really focus here our big idea this morning hostility and rejection may be inevitable but press on in faithful discipleship so hostility there's a lot of words there hostility and rejection may be inevitable But press on in faithful discipleship. This is what we'll see from Paul and we'll see from God's word this morning. We have a big passage to go through as usual this morning. But I want to give you a a bit of a a broad outlook as we approach this. Three scenes. There's going to be three scenes that we go through. Scene one is going to be a warm welcome. and, And you'll put this together. Our three scenes are the three points that we're going through. Scene one, a warm welcome of the Apostle Paul by James and the elders in Jerusalem. James is the half-brother of Jesus, uh, James who wrote the book of James or the letter. Uh, He's one of the prominent leaders in the Jerusalem church. So that's scene one, a warm welcome. Scene two, a cold reception by some of the Jews from Asia. They stir up a crowd, they arrest, beat, and hope to kill Paul. So that's scene two, a cold reception. And then scene three is Paul's speech. A bold proclamation. So a warm welcome, a cold reception, and a bold proclamation. That's where Paul makes his defense. And so we'll look not only at the content of his defense, but, but how, he, how he did it. His composure, his courage, and his conviction. So three scenes, three points, and much to learn about going on defense. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, I hope what we can draw out of this is what the Apostle Peter writes. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, uh, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So if you're a Christian here this morning, that's what I hope we can gain. Uh, A better understanding for us about how to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is in you. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, first of all, I'm glad you're here, and I hope you come away with a picture of this hope that we're talking about, that somehow through hostility and rejection, we can press on in faithful discipleship because we have a deep hope. And so, without further ado, let's dive in. Like I said, a lot to get through, but let's look at scene one, a warm welcome. Scene one, a warm welcome. let's read acts chapter 21 17 through 26 when we had come to jerusalem the brothers received us gladly on the following day paul went in with us to james and all the elders were present after greeting them he related one by one the things that god had done among the gentiles through his ministry and when they heard it they glorified god and they said to him you see brother how many thousands there are among the jews of those who have believed they are all zealous For the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. So that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. But that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed. We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain. From what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood. And from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And we can remember that was from the Jerusalem council. That letter to the Gentiles. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. So there's a lot happening there, a lot happening, but something I want to drill down on is this warm welcome, the bond of friendship that can exist between Christians. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it has the power of uniting people. Not only making strangers friends, but even making enemies family. It's a bold statement, right? There's not a lot of things we can think of that would make enemy family. But here we see a report of a warm welcome, of brotherly love. There is a a mutual celebration of one another. And this could go unnoticed, but I love that Luke spends time pointing out that Paul, he gives an update of what Paul, uh, god, of what god is doing with the gentiles right he's going and telling a story man you wouldn't believe you know sergius paulus you wouldn't that was this crazy story of him coming to faith oh man i preached one time so long a dude fell out the window but he was healed you know maybe he's, he's telling all these stories but He's saying look the gospel's moving forward if you missed that sermon go back for some context and understand why the guy fell out the window but He's, he's sharing what God's been doing. It is something worth celebrating. And then we see James reciprocated. It. He shares about how many thousands of Jews believed. This wasn't one-upping each other. Well, yeah, I've got this many. Well, I've got this many conversions. They were mutually celebrating. This was an occasion to celebrate. And it says they rightly glorified God because of the fruit of the gospel moving forward. I think this is a good reminder for us of how easy it is for us to slip into comparing ourselves with other churches and not celebrating with them. We could look at a church and say, why do they have so many baptisms and we don't? Or why do they have such a nice and functional building and we don't? Why did they get to plant a church before the pandemic? I confess that these thoughts are thoughts that run through my mind far too easily. But what a sad place that is to be. What a sad, uh, that is so different than the example we see from James and Paul. Of course we want to see baptisms. Of course we can see the benefits and blessings of a, a building. Right? And of course we can even wish that circumstances were more conducive to church planting. But how dare we criticize what, not what other churches are doing, but what God is doing through other churches. These things are cause for celebration. God deserves the glory, whether he does it here, whether he does it across the street, across town, across the country, or across the world. And so pray for other gospel-preaching churches. Pray that God would open hearts. Pray that his will would be done and that his kingdom would come. So James and Paul, they model this well. They mutually celebrate. We see different groups of people here, right? We see Christians, but we see Jewish Christians, we see Gentile Christians. And Paul would later write in Ephesians that the dividing wall of hostility would be broken down between the Jews and the Gentiles because of the gospel. And many scholars agree that this dividing wall, this kind of illustration, this word picture that is given, many people would think of the wall within the temple grounds That separated how far the Gentiles could go into the inner courts. But there was a wall there, and they have discovered, uh, archaeologically, uh, these plaques that say that Gentiles will be killed if they pass this point. A serious business, right? That is a dividing wall. We talk a lot about walls. Trump talks a lot about walls. You know, we we put up fences in our yards. But that is a dividing wall of uh, hostility. And so that's likely what was popping into people's heads. Uh, Later in this passage, we're going to see that the Jews are accusing Paul of bringing Gentiles past this point. Again, uh, punishment of death would follow. And so when, when we think about this dividing wall of hostility, I mean, talk about racial tension but we see uh, an example of Paul and James representing two different groups of people, yet they celebrate because they are one. They are united by the gospel. This friendship is a beautiful picture of a warm welcome. A beautiful picture of a warm welcome. Now we see, though, this wasn't all without challenges. James shares how some of the Jewish Christians are thinking that Paul is here to teach that they should abandon all their practices and customs. Now, we've been over this before. Paul is adamant that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. So rightly, he says, there's no ritual that can save you, uh, no works that can be done that can earn uh, enough credit with God for salvation. It is God's grace alone. But in that emphasis, some of the Jewish Christians are thinking he's saying, abandon everything you've known you can no longer uh, follow your customs and practices so james he he comes up with a plan he says paul why don't you go through this uh, purification process why don't you pay for some dudes to shave their heads why don't you go through this and that'll show the jews that that you're, you're you're with them You're not against them, you're with them. Now, likely there was more expenses than simply a shaved head uh, involving sacrifices and things like that. But even that act of solidarity, of of funding this and participating with them in this time, would demonstrate to the Jews that, that Paul is not saying, well, get rid of everything. But what Paul is consistently emphasizing is that those things can't save you. It's belief in Christ alone that can save you. And so this is this is James's plan. He says, "All right, let's let's do this." And so Paul, he says, "Right on. I, that's what I'm all about. Yeah, I'll participate in this purification. Uh, I'll pay for these other expenses. I'm not against the Jews." Right? He puts actions behind his words. He encourages uh, us and other churches in his letters to be flexible where we can have flexibility. There are non-essentials that we should be willing to forsake. For sake of harmony and the humility, it's a demonstration of humility for the harmony and unity of the church. And so an example of this would be, uh, just as we celebrate with other churches, or we should be celebrating with other churches, we too should make sure that we're not fighting battles with churches over secondary, secondary, uh, third, fourth, fifth-rate doctrinal things. We need to make sure that the foundational things are in agreement, are in place. That's what we talk about when we say gospel-preaching church. Uh, But the term that's used here, we don't have enough time to get deep into it, is theological triage. Theological triage. It's finding the right hills to die on. Just like in the hospital, when you go into the hospital, there's a nurse that's sitting there, uh, and they're doing triage. And they'll look at you and say, all right, uh, this is critical. We need to take care of this now. Uh, This is a little bit less important. We'll have to kind of back you up. Triage, it's sorting out the most important things, creating an order. And so when we talk about theological triage, we need to look at some things as being foundational. The most important things. There are non-negotiable truths, first-rate doctrines. So that's what we're talking about when we say a gospel-preaching church. Beyond that, there are still very important doctrines. It's not to say, throw everything else away. There are still very important doctrines in many different categories, but but they're not essential to salvation, not essential to the gospel. So an example would be uh, the church that normally comes in after us when we get to leave the chairs out. Uh, that's not the only perk. We get to share this space with other churches. But the church that comes in after us, we agree on the foundational things they are a bible believing gospel preaching church but there are things that pastor paul uh it's confusing the apostle paul is who we're talking about uh, but pastor paul is the guy that comes in after us and preaches but there are things that uh he and i would disagree on and that's okay why because we agree on the first rate things he preaches the gospel Uh, that church believes that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. And so the Apostle Paul, he models this, right? This is peacemaking. He says, we're on the same team here. We're on the same team. We desire the same goal. And so James suggests this plan. Paul says, well, it doesn't cause me to sin, so I will gladly do it if it helps. If this will help further the gospel, I will do whatever it takes as long as as I don't sin. And he says this in his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, He says that he would become all things to all people. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Paul writes this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. It's a key phrase through this passage, win. He wants people to hear the gospel and to know the gospel. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why? I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So that's the example that we see Paul doing. He becomes all things to all people. He gives up secondary things to win souls. But even with these efforts, and even in the midst of these efforts, this warm welcome that we see things start, it turns into a cold reception cold reception scene two a cold reception so let's continue reading acts 21 27 through 36 and when the seven days were almost completed the jews from asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out men of israel help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place moreover that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when, he saw, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Very nice. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Remember Agabus' prophecy? That Paul would be bound. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. the story sound familiar? False accusations, yelling away with him. The same words in Luke 23 for Jesus. This whole scene has uh, echoes from Jesus' trial, or lack thereof, his treatment, but also echoes of even what we saw recently, the riot in Ephesus. One, some people shouting one thing, some people shouting another. There's misunderstanding after misunderstanding, false accusation after false accusation. Everyone is yelling different things. and We see that the accusations against Paul, uh, we see four different ones. We see teaching, uh, an accusation of teaching against the Jewish people, teaching against The law, uh, teaching against the temple, and then bringing Gentiles beyond the outer court of the temple. That dividing wall that we talked about. Now, each of these offenses could have been considered capital capital offenses under Jewish law. So this was serious business. Right? One sentence, uh, just throw the book at them. Uh, And you are right in acknowledging the irony here. Wasn't Paul literally observing Jewish practices and law? While they pulled him away and claimed that he wasn't, yeah, you're, you're, you're catching what they clearly weren't. Um, but they claim that he's teaching against this Jewish law and practice. And by speculation alone, they're saying that he brought Gentiles beyond that half wall that you couldn't go past. Right? Oh, we saw him hanging out with that Ephesian guy. We should probably kill him. That's pretty much the, the logic of their thinking. And so flaky evidence or not, they acted unjustly and they acted swiftly. The crowd went mad and they were trying to kill him. Let's not downplay that. It's not like they were just kind of pushing him around. They they wanted to kill him. They were beating him. And so Paul, likely bloodied and bruised at this point, is, is headed to what appears to be death. But the Romans were close by as they usually were. They were keeping an eye on things and so they ran down. They were near the temple courts. They ran down to try to get control of the situation. The Tribune is a military bigwig. He's the Roman commander of the cohort. Uh, Could have here consisted up to 1,000 soldiers uh, under the command of several centurions. He couldn't even get a read on the situation because there was so much yelling and chaos. And so the soldiers had to carry Paul away because of the violence. Now, two weeks ago, we considered how following Jesus would cost something. It would cost everything. Paul knew this. Only a chapter earlier, Acts 20, verses 24. This was, again, what we talked about, his bumper sticker verse, maybe. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is it, Right? Paul made a bold statement. Now he's in Jerusalem. You know He's trying to follow the rules. He's saying, I'll do this. This will help. Boom, he gets wrangled up. People want to kill him. And so we could say, Acts 20, 24, I don't want to count my life as anything. But that's where the rubber hits the road. Are we ready for false accusations like this? Are we ready for these kind of attacks? We've addressed this verse a few times before. 1 Corinthians 1 18, as we look through the book of Acts, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is our only hope, but it will be regarded as foolishness or folly to those who don't believe. And so persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, I want you to notice some of the words here. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So being a victim of hostility, lies, accusations, rejection, mockery, it's inevitable. It's not something you'd be surprised about i'll tell you i have wrestled with this verse on a personal level because i'm likely with many of you thinking honestly i've done a pretty good job avoiding this my life maybe this passage maybe that little indeed all will maybe that's not relevant to me well maybe the problem isn't with paul's word choice to timothy maybe the problem was with us and the way that we're living that we're putting our own comfort and security above our call to follow Christ. Those are bold words, but that's what it costs to take up our cross and follow Christ. And so Paul shows that necessary steps can be taken for peace, right? His example of following these Jewish customs, but he wasn't, uh, the, the demonstration of that really shows he wasn't out to just poke the bear. He wasn't just looking for a fight. But faithful discipleship inevitably leads to persecution, leads to a cold reception. The early Christians, they were accused of all sorts of things that weren't true. Tony Merida highlights a few things that early churches were accused of uh, in one of his books. He says that the early church was accused of incest because they greeted one another with a holy kiss, a practice uh, particularly because of COVID, but in general we don't. Uh, adhere to a ton but uh, greeting one another with a holy kiss the church was accused of incest it's bogus they were cho- accused of cannibalism because they shared in the lord's supper talking about the bo- the body and blood of our lord they were accused of th- this will get you atheism because they refused to worship the emperor these are wild accusations false accusations But today, you know, maybe we'll get different accusations, but we will get false accusations. You may be accused of all sorts of things as you defend God's design for marriage. You may be mocked relentlessly for the hope you have in the gospel by those who are putting their hope in things that can't bear that kind of weight, things that could disappear in an instant. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. But like Paul, you are not alone. Jesus, too, was accused of false things. But he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus wept. Jesus understands suffering. Jesus understands being wrongly treated and even killed at the hands of lawless men. But Jesus, too, is with you always. Paul knew that that was the cost, but he also knew a far richer hope paul had a hope and that leads us to scene three All right we've seen a a, uh, a warm welcome scene two a cold reception and scene three a bold proclamation a bold proclamation filled with composure courage and conviction a bold proclamation All right the rest of the passage I'll try to read quickly here acts twenty one thirty seven through twenty two twenty two As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? That's just a crazy verse. (laughs) I just think there's so many things, uh, so many questions happening. Aren't you that Egyptian assassin? Anyway, let's continue. We'll get into it in a sec. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Remember, the people that were just trying to kill him. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard, that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. That Hebrew language, it could be translated to Hebrew dialect, a likely Aramaic. But he was speaking, so he spoke to Greek, to the Roman tribune, and now he's uh, speaking in a language that the people would, would understand and respect him for. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you are this day. Paul says, I persecuted this way, the church, the Christians, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also, Who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus. About noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me. Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? Jesus says you persecute my people. You're persecuting me. And I answered who are you Lord? And he said to me I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were there with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him and to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. this story will continue lord willing we will finish this scene next week but we see paul again warm welcome cold reception and a bold proclamation he gives us a picture of what it means what we talked about to give a, a reason for the hope that we have he does not crumble and cave yet he also doesn't snap I think that's important to see. He doesn't go into fight mode. We can learn a lot about, first of all, his composure, Paul's composure. I think it's embarrassing how often we get this wrong. Whether you are someone who thrive, you think you thrive in the fight, or whether you're conflict-averse, we all can too easily get our fists up. I feel like this last year and maybe... Uh, For many of us, even this last week has been a good litmus test for how we respond to weighty situations. But as we consider the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Unfortunately, our fruit is often spoiled and rotten. Looks more like what we see a few verses earlier in Galatians. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Paul keeps his composure. He is calm. He is clear. The Bible gives qualifications for elders. Some of them are. To be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, must be thought of well by outsiders. How many pastors and elders are disqualifying themselves by responding to injustice and false accusations, but in a way that looks a lot more like the rabble that seizes Paul, wants to kill him, rather than Paul's example himself? How many of us Christians are airing out our dirty laundry on social media or in these slanderous conversations? We all need to be reminded that we need to tame the tongue. We too need to be composed and calm. Now, does that mean that Paul was a coward? Sorry, another C word. There's a lot of C's here. Was Paul a coward? Well, we can all agree, not at all. We see his composure, but we see bold courage composure and courage paul was swept away by the romans i mean if i was him i mean i probably would have I, my sinful heart would have tried to avoid the, the situation long before but if i was him and i was getting beaten to a pulp uh, people were yelling i needed to be killed and then the, the romans came and got me and they said are you that egyptian assassin Honestly, i probably would have been like yeah like get me out of here uh we'll talk about this later right The Romans seemed to at least be willing to listen. But no, as usual, Paul was courageous. Paul was courageous. He had a conviction to share the gospel, to give a reason for the hope that he had, to tell his story of how he himself was saved. Honestly, he's polite. He connects at their level on a number of different ways. He talks about, he gives names of well-respected people, right? Gamaliel, Ananias emphasizes, these are people that you respect. You know them, right? He says, I grew up in this city that you know. I was trained in this way. I was zealous like you. He relates to them. He's polite, but he's courageous enough not to stop there. He maybe could have pled that case and said that there's my get out of jail free card, but he didn't. He shares his story, shares his hope. Not with cowardice, but with conviction. So we see composure, courage, and finally conviction. Paul shares how his heart was changed. He was zealously against Jesus and Jesus' people. He shares that he even approved of Stephen's murder. He shares that he was on his way to arrest Christians for simply being Christians. And he had an encounter with Jesus came to the realization that good works couldn't earn salvation. Having it all couldn't earn salvation. His zeal was completely misdirected. And this is the same situation that we are in today apart from the gospel. Our best works are like filthy rags. And the emphasis Paul makes in his story multiple times, I'd encourage you to read through it this afternoon and look for the way Paul tells his own story of his conversion. He emphasizes that it is God alone who does this work. He had nothing to contribute. He was on his way to do the opposite, yet God saved him. He couldn't and didn't save himself. But Paul was saved by the merciful work of God. This is that same hope that we have today. You may be sitting there thinking, it kind of sounds hopeless that you're saying we are hopeless apart from Christ. Maybe you think, I'd rather subscribe to some other way of thinking that you know gives me the control. The thing is, if, if you honestly look at your own heart, we can't and we shouldn't want that kind of control. This is why the good news is actually good news. Because it's God's grace alone that saves us. The sacrifice that Jesus paid on our behalf is something that we could never accomplish on our own. So this is what Paul expresses with composure, courage, and conviction. He says, this message is for all. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and I say that to you this morning, you are not beyond forgiveness. You are not beyond reach. You are not too far from this hope. This is, again, why it's called the good news. Paul's zeal for religion was exchanged for a zeal for Christ. And it became his mission, commissioned by Jesus himself to take this message to all people. It says, far away to the Gentiles. If you're a Christian here this morning, we have that same commission. Go, make disciples of all nations. We see this infuriates Paul's audience. They don't get it. It's foolishness to them. They don't believe. So this isn't the end of the story. And I don't stop here uh, to do the opposite of some... Clever ploy that like, oh, it all just works out happily ever after. Believe what I'm saying. Or, right, we see uh, Paul's reception is continually cold, almost gets worse. But a few weeks back, we considered the cost of discipleship, that the cost is insanely high, but the hope that we have is so much higher. And today we see a piece of this. I hope you have a clear picture of what the Bible says, that it doesn't sugarcoat what it means to follow Jesus. There are times of momentum-driven offense, right? You get the ball, you're moving forward. But there are times of dig-in-your-feet defense. And this may be apparent in your own personal walks. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're, you are hungry. You are saying, I want to grow, and I am growing. There's evangelistic fruit all around me. Praise God. You know, offense is, <laughs> I was going to say offense is the best offense. I, oh, that's true. The expression is <laughs> defense is the best offense. Anyway, that's offense. That's good. Praise God. You're moving forward. But honestly, I know many of you who are in a season where you feel like you are holding on for dear life, you are in defense mode. You feel like there are waves crashing down around you. You feel like there is a train barreling down on you and you don't know what you're gonna do. Well, praise God that he is with you in that storm. He has been with his people throughout all of time when the future looked bleak when they felt like they couldn't go on. Paul models this so well. He was clear in his defense that we looked at today that God was doing the work. God moved the mission forward, even when Paul and others were trying literally and figuratively to kill the mission. God saved Paul when Paul wasn't even looking. God brought Paul down to bring him back up. This is the message of the Bible. Time and time again, God uses incredibly flawed people, incredibly flawed people to accomplish his mission. God is the God of great reversals, great reversals. Think of Jesus, came to earth as a humble human child. Talk about a reversal, right? God with us, God made man. Not as a celebrity, not as a power figure, but time and time again as a suffering servant. It wasn't in a grand Crusade that Jesus conquered death, but through bring, being brought low, he became sin. It doesn't get lower than that. He became sin so that we could be made righteous. He died a death on a cross on our behalf. And as we considered a few weeks back, Jesus rose from the dead in this mind blowing reversal, this great reversal. He was brought low to be raised back up. And that is the Savior we follow. So when we consider discipleship, throw out that checklist of what you think you must contribute to be a faithful disciple and simply look to Jesus. Jared Wilson, uh, in a different book, but same author that wrote that Gospel According to Satan book, he talks about discipleship not as being just able to get our act together Uh, On our own volition, it means following Jesus wherever he goes. It means lashing ourselves to him like a sailor lashes himself to the mast in a storm-tossed boat. It means lashing ourselves to him like a sailor lashes himself to the mast in a storm-tossed boat. Are you in a storm-tossed boat this morning? Are you on your own one-yard line? And you don't know how you're going to hang on. Do you feel like you're bombarded with lie after lie from your opponents? Hang on. Lean on Jesus. Lash yourself to him. That is faithful discipleship. Consider the rich truths we find in God's word. For those who are weary, for those who are heavy laden. If you're in defense mode, you haven't done something wrong to end up there. That may be the very place that God needs you to be right now where his power can be displayed in your weakness. Hostility and rejection may be inevitable, but press on in faithful discipleship. Let's pray. God, we can only press on by your help. God, we can't do anything apart from you We can't even save ourselves. God, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for the the beauty of friendship, warm welcomes within the church. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, that we would grow in our understanding and love for you, that when those cold receptions come, we are ready. We will boldly proclaim the hope that we have in you, that we will defend the gospel, not just defend ourselves. God, we can only do that by your help. Again, Father, thank you that we could gather together, that we could sit under your word together. God, as we come to your table to remember the great reversal, the defeat of death, in Jesus death on the cross pray that you would allow us to consider it in a new way as we eat the bread and drink the cup that we would be reminded of Jesus too who faced false accusations of violent attacks but did so willingly so that we could be made right with you. we thank you for your grace and pray this in Jesus name who died for us, amen.